sung, I thought. You know, imagination is a good thing. I believe it's a God-given thing. Challenges us to think outside of our comfort zones. As we sang, uh, worthy is the Lamb, I thought. The line where it says, the darling of heaven crucified. I thought, what must that day have been like in heaven? Not just for God and not just for Christ, which we get a picture of in Philippians 2. But what must that day have been for the angels? Who had fellowship with the Son unbroken in His presence. All of, since their day of creation, they've been with Him. And this cry is going up before the throne of God about the sin of mankind. The rebellion of mankind. And then the Son stepped up or stepped out and put himself in a body. What must have the angels what must the angels have thought when they saw their glorious darling, the one they cherished above all else, the one who they lived to obey, go into a little baby's body? What must they have thought when he travailed to be born from Mary? What must they have thought when it was cool that night in Bethlehem and he lay in a cattle stall because no one on earth had room for him? What must the angels have thought as their Lord lay there helpless in the arms of a human? My mind runs away with the thought of what must they think? What must they have thought? What is going on with this thing? Why is God doing this? We love Him. We'll praise Him. We'll save Him. We'll reach down and grab Him up and make Him warm. We'll reach down and nurture Him close to our chests. Why must He go through this for these humans? Why must He go through this? Those are small thoughts. How must they have grieved when He went to the desert for 40 days with no food and no drink to be tempted by one of their own. How they must have cheered when every temptation was turned back with the Word of God the Father. How they must have been proud of their God. How they must have said, He's right. He did it. And then to be rejected by His followers. These created beings who have been in His presence and served Him without question for so long had to stand by and watch as the twelve men closest to the Lord walked away and let Him be crucified. Lied and denied Him. And that not to mention His pain on the cross. Oh, the Old Testament tells us they, they want, we get a small picture of this. They, want, they must have wanted to fly to his side. They must have wanted to be there to take his pain. They must have. He will give his angels charge over you that your foot will not even dash the stone. 
how the angels must have wanted to save him and rescue him. See, I don't think they knew what was going on fully. They don't know what's going on now fully. We know that because they rejoice each time a sinner comes home. As if it is new news to them. And then he dies. And now, what's going wrong? The one who left heaven now seems to be victorious. Satan. He's killed him. He's succeeded. How could this happen? And then we sing about him rising. Victorious. And now we see the picture of what angels long to understand. The master plan of God is so great and so big and so far beyond us, even the angels. But on that day, it must have all registered. He left heaven for this. He left heaven that he might be glorified. He left heaven that he might be glorified and in turn glorify his father. He left heaven so that heaven could be more glorious than it was before he left heaven. He left heaven to win the lost. And we think so lightly of our salvation. We pass over it. It doesn't affect us in the least. I was reading a man this week who made the statement, if you can hear a message on the gospel of Jesus Christ and your heart not be moved, question whether you are in the gospel or not. You should never, I should never grow tired of hearing the gospel. I should never get wearied by the thought that Jesus would leave that glorious heaven for a sinner like me. I should never lose sight of that. But see, we are so caught up in our individualism, which is swept into our theology, our so-called theology, that we've missed the entire scheme of God. We're so concerned about men and not God. It would be better to say the church studies anthropology, not theology today. The church of God doesn't study God. The church of God studies God only conveniently to learn about themselves so they can be glorified. And before we cast too many stones or point too many fingers, isn't it true that that's how I live my life most days and how you live your life most days? We know God only so we can know ourselves and feel better or more successful or more purposeful or whatever our cause is. More justified, whatever it is. And so I would say, far from studying God-centered, Christ-exalting theology. The church has busied herself studying about man. And in that, we've missed the heart of God's plan for His own glory. We've missed it. Romans 4, 1-5 reveals to us the heart of God's plan for His own glory. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
What is God's ultimate goal throughout eternity? We need to answer this question. What is God about? I've told you what I think our churches are about, what we are about. We're about ourselves, And which sometimes leads us into the path of knowing something about God so we can feel better about ourself. But what is God's ultimate purpose? And to understand that, we need to understand what an ultimate purpose is. There are contingent goals or contingent or subordinate goals. And this can be defined as a goal which leads to the ultimate goal. A contingent goal brings me to my ultimate goal. A lesser goal which is necessary for the attainment of a greater goal. You have contingent means, contingent goals in your life. Let me give you some examples. Just a couple. First of all, a contingent goal. I want to win the lottery. That's a contingent goal. Why? Because that's not the end. Why do I want to win the, uh, the, the lottery? The reason for winning the lottery is so that I will have all I've ever needed. Right? Physically. I want to win the lottery, win the $100 million jackpot, whatever it is. I want to win it so I can meet all my needs. But that's not really the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is so that I can be satisfied. I think that winning the lottery will meet all my needs, which will make me satisfied. My ultimate goal then is not the lottery. That is a subordinate goal, which brings me to my ultimate goal, satisfaction. Okay? There's a second example I want to give you. Some of you were offended because I talked about the lottery in church. So because I offended you, let me use one you might not get offended about. The reason for the children. Wait a minute. I want my children to obey the rules in my house. That is a contingent goal. It should be. Unfortunately, many times it's not, but it should be. So what should my ultimate goal be? Well, there's a secondary contingent goal. The reason for the children to obey the rules of my house is so that we can have a peaceful house and a respectful children. Right? I mean, they need to obey the rules. Why? So me and mom have peace. And so they don't have a sore backside. That's one reason. That's yet another contingent reason. But what is the ultimate reason for this? The ultimate goal is that the children will respect the authority of God and become obedient servants of Christ. Now we have an ultimate goal for parenting, right? To raise them to obey the authority of God, not me. And to serve Jesus Christ, not my rules. Okay? So the rules were a means to have peace, were a means that they would love God. That is the ultimate goal. You see the difference. An ultimate goal is a goal which is the true aim of all that is done. It's a climax of many other events. The ultimate goal is an end in itself. A religious ultimate goal or a church-focused ultimate goal. The glory of God. Right? But how do we express the glory of God? Because God's glorious. We're not making Him more glorious. He is glorious. What is our ultimate goal as His people? To worship Him. That's the goal of all of eternity for the believer is to worship Him. A contingent to that is missions and evangelism. 
much contrary to common belief in our day, missions and evangelism is a secondary thing. It's a contingent, a not necessary thing in the end. It won't be necessary. We won't do it anymore. But we will always worship. Let me, let me just get to this real quick here so that you see it. I think this is a good example. We are so man-focused that all we talk about in church is not worship. We talk about evangelism and missions. Why? Because we love men more than we love God. We send missionaries onto the field with the goal of saving people. Why? Because we love our fellow man more than we love the glory of God. So why should we? What should motivate us to send a missionary to the foreign seas or to live our life in our neighborhood or our college town or wherever we is? What should motivate me? Worship of God. It should be appalling to me that there are places in the world which don't worship the living God. And so I should be motivated not by reaching people, but by reaching worship of God in all the planet. Why should that be the cause? Because the glory of God is ultimate. And when all of the world is worshiping God, people from all of the world are worshiping God, I am confident that Jesus Christ will return and take us to Him and we will worship Him there forever. Not saving people. That's not the goal of the church. But in our anthropology, in our study of mankind, in our seeking to make man ultimate, we make these other things primary. And worship is primary. And God is primary. The important thing to remember is that any subordinate goal is not an end. A subordinate goal is a means to a desired end. In other words, is missions good? Yes. Is it ultimate? No. How do we know that? Because it will cease. And worship will not. Okay? It's not that I'm saying missions shouldn't be something we do. But we got to decide what we're going for. Are we going to see the worship of God spread to all mankind all over the world? Are we going to see one more person get saved? To add another notch to our belt. What's God's ultimate goal? What's His goal for all of eternity? The truth is that every action we take points to our ultimate goal. Listen to God's ultimate goal. I'll put them on the screen. This is a a widespread canvas of what the Bible says. It says much more than this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He do all those other things? For the praise of His glorious grace. God is God-centered. He's not you-centered. He's not me-centered. He's not man-centered. God is God-centered. Isaiah 43, 6-7, Bring my sons, God says, from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, contingent. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, another contingency, for what? For my glory. You have it there on the screen. For my glory. John 7, 18, the one who speaks on his own authority, Jesus says, seeks his own glory, but the, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true in him. There is no falsehood. He said, I'm not speaking of my own authority. I speak on God's authority. Why? Because it's his glory I want, not mine. 
John 12, 27 through 28, Jesus speaking to the Father. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That was Jesus' ultimate goal. Glorify thy name. And then God says from heaven with a booming voice, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God is God-centered. Romans 3, 25 through 26, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to show God's righteousness. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Why did God put Christ forward? For His own sake, for His righteousness' sake. Because God is ultimately about Himself. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, speaking of those who don't come to Christ, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. God is God-focused. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 48, 9-11 For my name's sake I defer my anger. He speaks of His glory once there. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. Second time that I may cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is concerned with Himself and His glory and His name. He is not man-centered. The church is off-key. The church is the one who's missing the boat. God is right in His statement that He is all in all. That He is about His own name's sake. These verses are a small sample of the verses, as I said, throughout the Bible that speak of God's ultimate purpose of His own glory. So how does God attain His glory? God, this would be in a contingent thing. Ultimately, it's about His glory, but what does He do to gain His glory, to spread His glory about? God obtains His ultimate goal in one main way in Scripture. God redeems fallen men. That's one main way that He gains His glory through redeeming fallen men from every tribe and every nation. Revelation 15, 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. Jesus made it clear in the Great Commission that He desired that some from every people group be redeemed for God's glory. Luke 24 says, Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all groups beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus says all groups need to hear this message. The ultimate goal of the gaining of God's glory for Himself is contingent on the goal of redeeming lost men to Himself from every tribe and from every people. We are man-centered in our churches. We are worse than that. We are individualistic. We teach our children to say, John 3.16, For God so loved, put your name in the blank. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, it's not individualistic only. Don't ever do that. Don't ever make that mistake. God loves people groups. God is redeeming for Himself some out of each people group. We'll never reach our task one person, one person, one person. We reach our task reaching out, praying for, seeking the lost in these groups of people. And there are thousands who have never heard the name of Christ. There are thousands who don't worship Him because they don't know He exists. There are thousands around the world who are dying and perishing without the gospel. And the church's response is, I'm more worried about my own than I am you. More preachers stay in the United States than go overseas. Why? Because worship is not ultimate, and worship of God among all the peoples is not ultimate. Worship of myself and my comfort and my family and what I want is ultimate. That's the conviction of my own heart about my own life. Any good message has to be preached to yourself first. The truth is, I'm me-focused. I'm satisfied with my family being safe. I'm satisfied with you being safe. I'm guilty of not loving God more than myself and my family and this church. I'm guilty. And I just have to think if I'm guilty, you may be guilty. And so what do we do? Sit in condemnation and sulk and whine about how bad we are? No. We hear the great commission of Christ go and proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations, of all people, everywhere. That's what we do. We hear it, and we believe it, and we trust it. Why is God's glory gained by this work of redemption? We're bringing it to a close. You've got to answer this question. <clears throat> the amazing truth about salvation is that it is accomplished completely by God. All that I have... All that I have is His. God gains glory from redemption that is accomplished by Christ through faith alone. But if we're saved any other way, it would not accomplish the ultimate goal of God. There's no other way to salvation because it wouldn't accomplish the goal, which is that God gain all the glory. Romans 4 tells us that. What then shall we say of Abraham, our forefather in the flesh, what then shall we say that Abraham has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works he's, receives his uh, wage, not a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes, has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. There are three main things here that keep it from being glorying me and you and not God. First of all, there's nothing you can do. You cannot work, do any work of any kind. If you do work, you cannot have the grace of God. It says that in verse 5. To he who works, his work is given to him as a wage and not a gift. It's given to him as his due. There's a lot of people living on this system. Justification is a declaration of God over your life. It can happen to you right here, right now. No works needed. 
If you work for your acceptance before God, then you can only receive the wages, what you have earned. As a man works for his day's pay, so you are working for God's pay. But if you have faith in God, then you can be given the gift of grace, which is eternal life. That's what the passage tells us in verse 5. You're an ungodly man. You are an ungodly man that is justified by God through faith. Another point that it's not about what you do. It's about the grace of God. Why? Because God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. If it was you doing better and working harder, then the verse would say God justifies those who have earned godliness. But instead it says God justifies the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul wants his readers to understand that faith is not righteousness. Faith is not righteousness. Two different things. Faith is counted as righteousness. Because we are not righteous, God counts our belief in Him as righteousness through Christ. Noah found the grace of God. How? By believing Him. And then he built the ark. You've been studying that. Aaron's been teaching it. That is the emphasis of the flood. Do you not know that? The emphasis of the flood is not just that God wipes a bunch of people out. He did do that. The emphasis of the flood is this. Believe me, Noah, I believe you, Lord. Counted righteous. Grace of God. Okay, now build this ark. 120 years later, he was sanctified. He built the ark. He got on it. Justification was in a moment. Sanctification took 120 years in Noah's life. It might take that long in mine. It might take longer in yours. But God's going to do it. And how is He going to do it? Not based on you building an ark in your life. He's going to do it by you trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's going to declare you just, and then He's going to make you just in Christ. See, where some miss it is they say God makes you godly, and then He saves you. No, God saves you as ungodly. That's the glory of the gospel. The good news is you are ungodly. And Christ saves the ungodly. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we thirst for. That's why your bones are drying up within you if you won't praise this God. That's why you're so longing to be satisfied by the things of this world. Because they can't do it. They're only your due. The only thing you can't earn is the grace of God and it's the only thing you don't have to earn. He says, take it. It's a gift in my son. Jesus Christ. And Abraham, the same way Noah was sanctified or justified. How was he justified? By having a son and raising that son and working to save his life? No. He was justified because he believed the promise of God. He was justified immediately. And he was sanctified over a long process. He messed up a lot after that. But it never shook the fact that God said, You're the ungodly man saved by me. Faith 
finally is counted as righteousness and nothing else. Nothing else can substitute for faith. Love can't. Good works can't. Sincerity can't. Nothing can substitute for this faith. It's the only thing that can be counted as righteousness. Why? Why? Look back at verse 1 and we're going to close. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? What was gained? Nothing. That's the answer. Nothing. See, Paul just built the case about how everyone is ungodly. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have done that. And then we read right here this beautiful picture that it's not by circumcision, it's not by having a son, it's not by working, it's by faith. Look what he says. What does he have? What did he do in the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Remember God's ultimate goal is what? His own name. And in Isaiah 43, he says, I will not give the glory due my name to anybody else. If he let you do one thing for your salvation, you would take his glory. I would take his glory. It won't happen. Why? Because we don't do anything for it. We cannot save ourselves by our works. God says, I won't share my glory with another person. I'm going to do all that's necessary for salvation. I'm going to gift you with faith. I'm going to give you salvation. And you're going to be saved by me, through my son, and by faith alone. It's not your faith. It's God's faith. We'll see that next time. It's not your faith even. It's God's faith. What keeps boasting from going on? Why, why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians, I don't boast in anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Why? Because there's nothing to boast about. I am nothing but by the grace of God. So we boast in Christ and not ourselves. I want you to apply this these ways and more. We have no room for boasting except in the grace of God through Christ. Pride is a sign of a lack of sanctification. If you are a prideful person, when I am a prideful person, it's a sign that I am showing a lack of faith in Christ and I am lacking in sanctification. I'm not better. I'm worse. Secondly, you must believe in Jesus Christ and Him alone if you're going to be saved from sin, death, and hell. You can't save yourself. Three, the ultimate goal of every Christian should be the same as the ultimate goal of God. That is what motivates us to the Great Commission. Our ultimate goal is the glory of God just like His ultimate goal is His own glory. And so we go out sharing this good news so that He might have His glory spread to the ends of the earth. Four, the heart of worship is inspired by the work of God, by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ Jesus alone, for God's glory alone. It's a blessed truth. It's a blessing that is almost and is really in human terms indescribable. It's not the way I would have done it if I was God. That's why I'm not God. Only God could do this. Aren't you glad He's done it? Aren't you more motivated now to go and tell others the good news 
than simply to be motivated to go and share the good news because somebody might die. Somebody might not go to heaven. Ultimately, you and I will be motivated to the gospel and to the sharing of the gospel for God's glory. That's what will ultimately do it. These other things secondarily, but the main thrust will be the glory of God. If not, we'll burn out and we'll quit. The only thing that will keep you stoked is the glory of God. That's it. It's the fuel that lights the fire. It's the fire that sets the wildfire in the world. Every revival starts with submission in prayer and calling on God to do what only He can do and people who are consumed with the glory of God enough to tell other people about it, the good news. No revival starts focused on mankind. No revival starts that way. Zero in the history. Go back and study it. None of them do. The great revival started, and we are in desperate need of one, all of us. They started because people longed for the glory of God, not because they were afraid about people dying. I don't want to scare you to motivate you. I want to challenge you. Live for this glory and this glory alone. Let's pray. Father, these truths are so much bigger than me, so much bigger than this congregation, so much bigger than this generation, so much bigger than than anything except you. I know that heaven this morning is worshiping in pure worship before your throne. And I praise you for that. And I pray we would worship you and that we would be committed to nothing less than the glory of God spread throughout the world. May we not be motivated ultimately by dead men. May we not be ultimately motivated by our own selfish, prideful gain. May we not ultimately be motivated because because people are hungry for the truth. Those are all okay things. To want to be known as your child, to want to be seen as one who spreads the gospel, that's okay. But it's not ultimately what we need to be known as. Lord, may we be known as a people who crave and long and seek to spread your glory throughout the earth. To all peoples everywhere. Lord, may we not be guilty, may I not be guilty of leaving here motivated by anything short of your glory, but may you fill me with this burning desire to display you to everyone in Jacksonville, in Calhoun County, in the United States and around the world. Lord, we do come to you this day thanking you for your gift of Jesus Christ our Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. There are several announcements.